Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, we share a conversation with Washington State Senator Manka Dhingra. Stay tuned. As a global citizen, I cherish societies where an incredibly gratifying vehicle of self-determination and representation is the power of our individual vote. No matter your political stance, we carry a responsibility to make our voice heard at the ballot box and felt at all levels through the actions of policymakers serving in our governments and of course by holding them accountable. It often takes an event or issue of consequence that motivates us and builds the trust and confidence to feel empowered and run for office. For Manka Dhingra, as an immigrant from India, as a woman of Sikh faith and heritage, she had already been a strong advocate for marginalized people and victims of domestic violence in her local community of Redmond, Washington. But it was the 2016 general election and its outcomes that galvanized this attorney and behavioral health expert with over two decades of experience to run for office as a state senator and win, becoming the first Sikh state legislator in the nation. Since then, she's been a strong leader in finding solutions to criminal justice reform, reducing poverty, and improving equity. As a crisis intervention and mental health expert, Manka has been at the forefront of innovations in prevention and providing much-needed behavioral health support for the residents of Washington. I was so grateful to catch up with her to chat as we talked about her many motivations, joys, and challenges in serving as an elected official. But we started by talking about her own reflections on the tragic rash of visible and preventable gun violence that has struck the country these past few weeks. You know, to say that I'm devastated is an understatement. I think all of us, so many of us feel that way. I remember Columbine so clearly because I was in law school at the time and I remember just being glued to the TV and thinking, oh my God, how can we allow this as a country to happen again? And now when you take a list, I take a look at the number of mass shootings we've had in America, it, it's it's incredulous. And we as a country, this is like an American issue. Other countries that have had mass shootings, they address the problem. And the solution is access to guns. Yeah. Um, and so we have to do more. I will say I'm very proud of the work that Washington has done in the last five years since I flipped our Senate and the Democrats took the majority in uh, in Washington. We have made significant um, improvements in um, gun violence. But I also want to be really clear, because you also mentioned mental illness, that people want to go and say, oh, it's someone who had mental illness. And I want to be very, very clear that the individuals who have a mental health diagnosis are more likely to be victims of crime rather than perpetrators of violence. And I think it's very important for all the listeners to understand that. What we do see as a much more common theme is actually domestic violence. Even in this incident, what did he do first? 
he killed his grandmother. And so really talking about what power and control means and how that manifests itself in our society, along with access of weapons of war, that's a very, very concerning combination. You know, is the ultimate solution here that we see as we get angry and as we get frustrated, is it still at the end of the day up to the ballot box to, to help create this change? Or, or is there any dialogue that that actually is fruitful? Because at least in the last few days, it, it's been you know such a mixed amount of responses and you know, trying to clarify or distill out what the solutions could be can can be challenging for most Americans. You know, it really can be. And this is something, unfortunately, it is about the ballot box. Yeah. It is about political parties, because these conversations should have been occurring right after Columbine when that happened. Yeah. And they don't. They end up being very partisan issues. And frankly, I'll say the political system is broken in terms of gun safety because the vast majority of Americans believe in background checks. They believe in limiting magazine capacity. They believe in safe storage. And so this is where a lot of our politicians are not in line with responsible gun owners. I have friends who hunt. I have friends who own a gun for self-defense, but they don't own weapons of war. And what we're talking about in these mass shootings are weapons of war. Yeah. In some ways, as many innovations as there are to address so many other issues. And yet the innovation of being able to say that, you know, my, the power of me as an American, my single individual power is, of course, in the vote and what, I, what impact I can have as an individual. And yet, you know, in states or, or areas where there's already kind of locked in tribes, it, it may seem like to, you know, the average person or even the uninformed person that my vote really doesn't matter. How, what's your kind of take on that in, in that, you know, well, I vote, but I'm already locked into a blue or a red zone and therefore it's not going to make that much of a difference. You know, what we have found that elections are becoming closer and closer, that uh, every single vote does make a huge difference. And even if your candidate doesn't win, the fact that your vote got counted, that your voice got heard and is reflected in that number, that in of itself is really important. And I cannot stress to you how critical it is that everyone registers to vote and they actually vote. It makes a huge difference. I, you know, I always say that when democracy awakens, justice wins. And we have seen that happen over and over again, because it is the truth. That is why there's so much voter suppression. That is why there's so much gerrymandering, because people understand and know that people have power and their votes matter. And so if people want to take that power back, you got to make sure your voice is heard at the ballot box. I'm, I'm always so you know curious as to why voting and election day is either not a holiday or it's you know just like having an ID or, or having a driver's license that you know many other countries do this where you know it's not just do you want to vote it's more like when and, and how are you voting and you have to vote and I hope that we can somehow find a way to make that much much more accessible where people can register to vote that much easier and and make it you know you know second nature to go out and vote. So what I love that Australia does is you actually have to pay a fine if you don't vote. You get a ticket <laughs> right. in the mail saying, oh, you haven't voted, pay your ticket. But, you know, in Washington state, we've had mail-in ballots for years. Yeah. 
And we do early registration, we do pre-registration, we do same-day registration. It cannot be easier to cast a vote in Washington. And we do see higher numbers of participation, but definitely not the levels that we want. I imagine that, you know, as you mentioned, the elections are close and they get closer every year, it seems like. And I imagine that on nearly kind of every issue in politics, you know, just as there's so much division, have you found any secrets or any best practices to truly building compromise and like actually having engaged discussion with, quote unquote, the other side of the aisle? Yeah, you know, I actually firmly believe that we have a lot more in common than what separates us. Yeah. And the for the vast majority of people, we share a lot of commonalities. So when I ran for office, I'm someone who does not have a political background and we you go knock on doors. That's what you do. And every time I would go knock on a door and I, for one, did not want to go knock on all the Democrats doors because the when I decided to run for office, my seat actually was a determining factor on who controlled the Senate. So I knew the Democrats were going to vote for me. And so I actually went to the independents, the undecided and the ones that lean Republican really to have those conversations. And I would go to the door and there are times when people would say, oh, what party do you represent? And I would always start off by saying, you know, I actually really want to talk about the issues and what is important to you and what's important to me. I said, because I don't know what it means to be a Democrat, because it's such a wide spectrum. Right. I can talk to you about healthcare. I can talk to you about criminal justice reform. I can talk to you about safety. And vast majority of time, it's very, very similar, right? We want the world to be a better place for our children. We want our children to have better opportunity. We want a clean environment. It doesn't matter what your political leanings are. These are things we all agree on. Do you have to have at least a combination of confidence and empathy just to be able to to do that? And does it make it tougher when the other person you're talking to doesn't necessarily have that confidence in you or that that empathy uh, to even have that dialogue? So empathy is key. And what you find over and over again, um, that the lack of empathy in certain ways determines how you feel on certain issues. But um most people are willing to engage in a conversation. I can tell you one, um, I'd gone to an individual's um, house. And when I was a prosecutor, I was a senior deputy prosecuting attorney for 18 years before I decided to run for office. And I had created and run the therapeutic alternative unit. So this is actually, I think, the first unit of its kind in the country, really taking a look at early intervention, crisis diversion, taking a look at de-escalation techniques with law enforcement, alternatives to incarceration, taking a look at trauma-informed care. Yeah. And so this this guy, he's like, well, I'm a Republican and, you know, you've done some like criminal justice reform stuff and I don't agree with that. I think people should, you know, be held accountable and sent to jail. And I said, you know, one of the things that I helped start was a veterans court. And I said, these are individuals who have served our country, who go to war, they come back and they have severe PTSD and they are self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. I said, with Veterans Court, we're putting them in treatment. They're in a very intensive program for two years. And then they end up getting their life back. They get a job, they get a house. And he goes, well, that's okay then. And I'm like, and that's what we do with anyone who has a mental health issue or has other trauma they've gone through. That guy ended up voting for me. But had we not had this conversation and I, and I had, and if I hadn't been able to give him that example that he could relate to, we wouldn't have gotten there. 
that seems so almost foreign or impossible in an era where everything is so time sensitive and so digital where you can't necessarily build the kind of relationships that you get when having that conversation in person at the front door or at a town hall. You know, does that change the calculus a little bit when when you're trying to, again, sort of get away from this constant tribalism? Absolutely. You asked what the secret was. This is the secret. It's yeah. real relationships with real people. Yeah, that's the only way you get beyond the, the tribalism. And I got to tell you, running, I didn't run during COVID, but that was a huge factor because as a party, Democrats tend to knock on doors yeah. and that's where those relationships get built. You mentioned some of the innovations that you've been um, really exploring both uh, in and out of your state when it comes to prevention and crisis services and the infrastructure to try and make sure that some of these great creative ideas can be executed. What needs to happen for maybe some of these systems to have less friction, especially for access for veterans, for immigrants, for those who are marginalized or more vulnerable? And, and particularly, you know, this seems to always be a challenge in our South Asian or Indian American community, too. Yeah, you don't ask easy questions, do you? <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because there's so much stigma involved at so many levels. If you yeah. talk about behavioral health, huge stigma in mainstream society, yeah. way more in the South Asian Indian culture. And then even when you're talking about as immigrants, there's still that, that stigma, that hesitancy, that distrust. And, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing in the last few years, especially when COVID hit, was actually trying to identify trusted messengers in different communities and really making sure that as a state, uh, when we're using federal dollars or state dollars, uh, the state, frankly, does not do a very good job in getting access into marginalized communities or immigrant communities because they have a different system set up. And yeah. so trying to then funnel resources and information through trusted messengers is really the way we need to be moving forward as a country. I know California is uh, doing that. Washington is doing that and really utilizing these uh, trusted messengers. But one of the things I'm super excited about is the national unveiling of the 988 number. Um, yeah. You know, we have a 911 number that you call when you need help. But especially for behavioral health, it is not illegal to have a behavioral health crisis. Yeah. So we shouldn't have to call 911 to get help. And right. come July, everyone in this country can dial 988 and uh, that would be the behavioral health crisis number. And I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, each state is going to build up its own robust behavioral health system around that number. And I'm really hoping that that is something that can help different communities try to access services in a way that they feel comfortable doing so. I'm curious to just sort of reflect back a little bit. When did you first start thinking or even realizing that participating in government, governing was sort of a, a pathway for you? And for that matter, you know, was there a sort of single event? Was it a spark of events? Was it something you've been thinking about for a long, long time? Yeah. So, you know, um, I mentioned I've been a prosecutor for 18 years and that work came to me because I come from a really long line of strong women and I've always very much been involved in uh, gender based violence. Mm. And, you know, I'll play the stereotypical Indian. The rest of my family are engineers and doctors. Yeah. Um, and I'm the one who said, no, I want to go to law school. I was very clear in high school. I wanted to go to UC Berkeley for undergrad. I wanted to go to Yale for law school. Loved Berkeley. 
I have nearly all my cousins and everyone, all of us went there. Yale didn't want me, so I went to University of Washington. Uh, and then I became a prosecutor because I really did believe in um, in fighting for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault and trafficking. And we know a lot of women of color are victimized. And so I, that's how I started my journey on I guess, advocacy in some way. I uh, was one of the founders of API Chaya. It's a South Asian domestic violence organization. It also helps survivors of sexual assault and trafficking. And then through the prosecutor's office, as I mentioned, I started doing a lot of policy work around behavior health, crisis intervention, and all of that. I never thought of running myself. It, it just never even occurred to me. You know, we have Pramila Jepal in the state of Washington, and I knew her way when, uh, before she got involved in politics, and I saw her rise, and I'm like, great. Love having Pramila, uh, you know, uh, more power to her. But again, never thought that was something for me. Yeah. And then we had a national election in 2016. Hmm. And that election result hit me in a way I never thought politics could. Yeah. Um, I, it, I took it very, very personally because my entire life was spent advocating for survivors. And here we have the leader of a country boasting about sexually assaulting women, like yeah. boasting about it. You know, I've sent people to prison and jail for what he admitted doing. Yeah. And he's mocking individuals who have a mental illness. Again, work that I've been doing. And then the way he talked about uh, other cultures and the rise in hate crime. So it really felt to me that my entire work for the last 20 years had just been attacked um, by him winning. So I actually went to my very first Democratic Party meeting that December. Wow. Um, and a friend of mine, who's now the mayor of Redmond, had uh, reached out to me when she saw me there. And she goes, are you going to run for office? And I, the first thing that came to my mind was, I don't think I'm qualified. And she just started laughing. And she said, you know, the vast majority of women say that when they're asked. And she said, you're the most qualified person I know. And even then, while she planted the seed, um, I wasn't necessarily convinced that was the way I knew I wanted to do something. I just didn't know what that was. And then the local mosque had a hate crime, uh, they had a safety forum. Mm -hmm. I was there. We had six of our police chiefs that were there. And this was a large auditorium full of people. And I heard people ask whether they should buy a car, whether they should buy a house. They didn't know if they would be allowed to live in this country anymore. Mm. And, you know, I come from a sick family. My grandfather was a turban. My brother was a turban. My husband was a turban. And I just remember thinking, I don't ever remember feeling like I didn't belong. And then there was a hate crime forum in two days later at the Indian Association of Western Washington. Never, ever do two hate crime forums in, in one week. And it was that weekend that um, my family, we sat down and we decided I was going to run for office because it's yeah. so critical that people who look like us are in halls of power. And, and you know, that same feeling of not feeling included or feeling like your Americanism was at risk here have you felt that that's obviously because of your political engagement changed? Have you felt like the tone or the zeitgeist is is perhaps different or are the undertones of what created that 2016, you know, trauma, if you will, are those undertones still there? So I'll tell you, I've been a lot of firsts in my life, right? I was uh, the first South Asian prosecutor in King County uh, when I used to go to court. I was the only one that looked like me, right? Yeah. Most of my uh, counterparts um, were white. 
I trained law enforcement. I was very often the only woman, the only woman of color in those rooms. But the amount of racism I had faced in my life was nothing compared to what it was when I ran for office. Mm. That level of narrative that's about us versus them, that division, that comes into politics way more than it comes out in normal life. Yeah. In normal life, while while people may feel some bias, the extent is, is minuscule compared to what happens in politics. And that was something I wasn't necessarily prepared for. Mm-hmm. But those undercurrents are there. They're, they are much more dramatic in political life. I talked to a friend of mine, Mira Dave, recently. She was talking about this as a function of race and gender, perhaps not just being additive, but multiplicative when it comes to the amount of bias or or the amount of the barriers that are placed in, and particularly for legal academics. But I'm curious if you feel that that's true in, in politics, where it's not just you add race and gender and immigrant status, and they actually are exponential as you build on them. Uh, it creates you know that much more fodder for others who are trying to actually build a political case against you. And then you add power on top of it. Right. And then when you take a look at how the system is created, it is created to generate power. And so what's really interesting is when we come into these spaces, we actually can change culture and um, can impact um, the entire organization, not just our role. So, for example, the year after I got elected, the Senate majority leader reached out to me and said, I would like for you to be the deputy majority leader. And of course, my first response is, is there a job description? Because I'm new to politics. I don't know what a deputy majority leader does. And so we talked about it. And I said, you know, I would love to be part of leadership, but I also want to do policy work. I don't want to give up policy work to do leadership. I'm like, can we have co-deputy majority leaders? Mm. Guess what? In politics, you're in share power. I'm like, I'm happy to share it. And so I talk a lot about, you know, gracious space. What does it mean? How do we show up for each other? How do we share power? It's not something that you need to be afraid of. Um, You know, we've changed the culture where now the chairs of committees actually invite their vice chairs to share power in how they run that committee and what bills are heard. And so there's been a dramatic change in the Washington State Senate in the last four years. And I'll take some credit for it. But it's gotten to the point where people outside the organization are noticing it. And it feels great. You know, that shared grace, that ability to cooperate and and build coalitions and compromise and, you know, find that that power can exist in, in multiple spaces at the same time. How does that translate when you're actually campaigning and you have to fundraise and, you know, people whose campaign contributions are going towards a particular candidate or a party are, are looking for power. Are they, They're looking for that sort of dominance. Find, does it create any new challenges when you're the party of shared power and shared grace in this? I think people are looking for something different. Uh, I think they do want something positive. So when I first ran my campaign, I was very, very clear that the messaging is very much based on values. It's based on what drives me. And the narrative is why I am the best candidate. Mm. Not about who the other person is, not why we're different, but why am I running and what do I bring to the table? And so I still keep the narrative the same way. So when people support me, it's because they're supporting my values, they're supporting 
um, how I show up. And I find that that message in of itself is sufficient. You don't need anything else. I wonder also if that moral compass and that political compass makes it easier for you to be inclusive and sort of make sure that everyone is fitting under the tent, even though they may not be a donor or they may not have big pockets to make a political campaign donation or a contribution. That's that's exactly it. It really does. And, and frankly, it makes my life easier. Um, people know I am upfront, honest. And so when you hear something from me, that's the message you're going to you're just going to hear consistency. And then I don't have to worry about who I told what to because it's all the same. It's all transparent. It's all out there. Right. Let me ask you this. You, you've been in public office now for almost five years. How do you think the experience so far has in some ways changed or modified at all your your view of being an American, but especially from the lens of a woman, the lens of someone who is an immigrant, the lens uh, of someone who has experienced uh, racism and has been perhaps in a marginalized community. Um, what is what is this experience being a legislator done to your view of your American identity? You know, I felt really American before 2016. This was my country. I'm an American. That's what it was. It was in 2016 when I felt that that was questioned. Mm -hmm. And then when I won, it kind of reaffirmed again for me that, yes, this is what America looks like. And we all do belong. It is a land of immigrants. And then I'll just say what I struggle with greatly is the gender as well. Mm. For all the inclusiveness that we talk about, um, there's a lot that America has to do in terms of uh, equality among genders. Mm. And I was really hopeful that we were making great strides. And then COVID hit. And I'm watching these numbers come in of who's coming out of the workplace and how it's impacting families. Guess who still bore the burden of looking after the kids and the elderly and the family? It was the women. Yeah. Who ended up leaving the workforce? It was the women. And I look at these numbers and by the way, those women have not gone back to work yet. Yeah. And I'm just saying, what is going on? I thought we had made so much more progress than uh, what we see. And again, this is something that I was really proud of, that in Washington, we had paid family leave. And so that helped. But our gender gap, when it comes to take a look at CEOs, take a look at diversity mm -hmm. on boards, take a look at uh, the wage gap. It's, it's really shocking. Take a look at gender-based violence. I mean, we're still just scratching the surface on the stuff. And during COVID, domestic violence went up 30%. So I have a lot of hats. <laughs> and, and being a woman is definitely a big one. Well, certainly a lot of work to do and to create allies and, and to make sure that that work is gaining more and more momentum, whether it's uh, sort of a Marshall Plan for moms or whether it's getting more equity in in the work environment and and allowing for that um, equity to be reasonable and 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 make common sense for for women to lead in in light of that you know to those who might be entering the world of civic engagement for the first time just like you were doing you know five years ago or so and and perhaps either entering office or running for office for those women of color for for anyone for that matter but particularly for those women of color, as you reflect on on the struggles of it, what have been perhaps some of the joys? What are some of the joys or the things that, that bring you hope and optimism about your role that you would want to share with them as they perhaps enter this space for the first time? You know, it, that has been 
an amazing experience with all the challenges of running for office, all the racism. It truly is a privilege to be an elected official. You know, I get handwritten notes, I get cards, I get emails um, from people from all walks of life. And there are people who really feel so strongly that I'm in office and, and different people, right? I actually was at the grocery store four years ago after my second election. And I remember this dad, uh, an Indian dad with a young girl, you know, he stopped me and he wanted a photo and it's, that's, that's new. <laughs> I yeah. do get stopped and, 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 you know, I was having camera ready, <laughs> um, you know, and, and he was just talking about how proud he was to be able to tell his daughter about me. And that is something I had not anticipated happening with my position. And that has happened over and over again. So just kind of understanding that, you know, I am a much more visible role model. And then just the work that I do, right, because the issues I work on are mental health, domestic violence, police accountability, criminal justice reform. And so just just the the notes of gratitude and thanks that I get are, are truly humbling. Well, I'm sure not only for those listening, but for your constituents and for the people who are surrounding you, there is a, a fair amount of gratitude for all that you're doing. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real treat, and I, I hope we'll get a chance to talk to you again down the road. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to some more. Thanks so much, Monica. And thanks, Rosalia, for the Great Bear Connection. Remember, starting July 16th, when people call, text, or chat 988 from anywhere in the U.S., they'll be connected to trained counselors that are part of the existing National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. Remember, call, text, or chat 988, and please share widely. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. This is DJ Artifacts, and you can check out RuckusAvenueRadio.com for more information like the latest station programming and much more.